also I am going to take my mask off for the first time in a long time. And uh, just to let you know that, uh, that the elders uh, collectively just decided that since I was fully vaccinated that I would uh, preach without a mask on. So if you feel like you're too close, you can move back. But uh, I, I think everyone's going to be okay. And uh, I, I'm thankful for the freedom to do that. You can see my face one day. I'll be able to see your faces. And I, I'm very excited about that too. Uh, preaching is actually a reciprocal thing. So that'll be good. So as much as you can, smile at me with your eyes. And uh, it'll make me feel better. Um, we, uh, you know, as we navigate all of these uh, differing um, you know, these changes uh, as they come to us from mandates from government and all, all of that, I, I just want to encourage all of us to be, to be patient, you know, and charitable to the person who takes the opposite view of you, to be patient and charitable with the elders as they wrestle through all, all of these uh, differing uh, requirements as they, as they come at us and, and how we respond to them. So just, I, I just ask that you, you pray for one another. You love one another with, with uh, the kind of love that Jesus told us to to uh, a new commandment I have given you, he said. Love one another as I have loved you. So I just want to encourage us all to do that. Believe the best about one another. Uh, and, and as we grow as a church in love, we will grow more like our Savior and the world will watch and they will say, what kind of a God is this? So we're going to begin this morning uh, with prayer. With that, all of that said, so we go to prayer with me one more time as we approach our great God. Father, we do come to you, uh, even as we have sung in the, in the story of which we have sung is we, we must bow down before you and rejoice because you are king. You're the shepherd king who has brought rebels into your kingdom. We rejoice because you, you are the, the God of the universe. You, you created by your words and Everything came into being. We believe so that everything has purpose and people have dignity. We, we believe that, oh God. But when we look at you and we know this past week, we know that we've sinned against you. We've rebelled and we've betrayed the Lord of glory and we've denied you in so many different ways. Oh God, we have to ask you to heal us. Father, the story of, of your greatness, that God created everything. But when we look at ourselves and we look at man and we look at our world, we do see that we were the unfaithful ones. We, we sung, come all you unfaithful. And that's what you invite. Because none of us are truly faithful. None of us in ourselves are faithful apart from Jesus Christ. So we come to you as unfaithful ones, to the only truly faithful one, and ask you to heal us, O Emmanuel. Hear our cry. We, we come to you like those who have come to you before, not, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to your cross we cling. And Father, we don't simply come to you as individuals, we come to you as a people. One of the reasons we've gathered this morning is to celebrate the empty tomb the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, his death and life in our place. God, we've come to celebrate that. We've come as your people to celebrate that. So we want as one voice to say, oh God, receive our praise. Only you are worthy of it. Only you could gather a people like this. Only you could gather a people from so many different backgrounds and so many different places and, and, and so many different situations and, and so many different mindsets. Only you could gather us even in our sins as people who worship you as the only true God. So receive our praise, we pray. And God, we ask that as we come to you with this somber and sober text that we would see the hope and the life and the light found in Jesus Christ who offers us a meal in the midst of deep darkness, in the valley of the shadow of death. He offers us bread and wine. He offers us his very self. God, we take freely. It costs you, but it's free to us. And so we come to you as as those who uh, betray, as those who deny, but as those who look to you 
as our only hope in life and death. And we ask you, O God, to meet with us. May your spirit move among us in really in real ways. God, would you, would you take down the hardness of our hearts, the rebellion that remains? Would you crash it down with your word and with the beauty of Jesus Christ as he's pictured here in your word, in the scriptures? We pray that you would break down our hardness, oh God. You would give us the experience of, of having a new heart, a human, a fleshly heart that would replace our heart of stone. God, we're asking you to let us live and let us see Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. And Father, we don't only ask that for us. We thank you that we get a partner in this kingdom work right here in this city with other gospel-preaching churches. We thank you for Calvary of Corvallis and Calvin Prez and Suburban Christian. And God, we ask that you would bless them as they preach your word. I pray that your word and not the opinion of man would be central in these pulpits this morning. God, your people in this city need life, and you're the only one that can give it. We pray that from their mouth, words that would glorify our Savior and build up the church would be spoken. God, your words would be rightly divided, and the church in Corvallis would grow. And you would give us a sort of revival and renewal of, of spiritual things here so, so that your name may be glorified. We know that happens through ordinary means of grace, like the preaching of your word. So use these men, we pray, to preach your word with boldness, without fear, and with great compassion and gentleness. We also pray for church partners like Saving Grace Church in Milwaukee, Oregon, God, and, and we ask that you would give them great joy as Brian opens your word and, and shows them the word of life. We pray that there would be a gospel witness there in Milwaukee that would spread out and, and joy would come to the nations there because of the preached word. God, we, we also pray for the country of China. God, we ask that our brothers and sisters there would, would shine a joyful light in the midst of their suffering and persecution. Even some of them have betrayers, have, have those who would betray them to the government. We ask that you would be their very, their very help, their very need. We pray for the theological education of the pastors there, that it would increase and grow, that your name may be made great, so that they might know that Jesus is truly Lord and King over all. They don't have to suffer very long. Remind them that you have said through your apostle that the, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In their, really real, in their real suffering, would you help them? God, and we pray for our own country. We pray for our president. We pray for President Biden. Uh, we, we ask that you would help him to rule justly under you knowing that his power comes from you. God, we pray that you would help him rule righteously for all. God, we pray for our own governor, Governor Brown. We thank you for her. We pray that you would help her surround her with godly counsel that would drown out the counsel of Ahithophel. God, would you please help her to, 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 just, to justly rule, to, to govern in, in, in righteous ways for the good of the people here, for, for our state. God, we do know that all authority is from you. So we bow to your authority. We bow to your word. We pray that you would help us. I pray, O oh Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer and the one who gave up his life for us. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You know, in the middle of the deepest darkness that any human could imagine, I think that Jesus had psalms like this on his mind. The very day of his, his betrayal and, and ensuing death, in the middle of deep deep darkness in the presence of enemies, the Lord prepares a table, a meal for those he loves. And we're in Mark chapter 14. And in this passion narrative, you know, Mark has written 13 chapters um, up to this point. And, and, and in this passion narrative, which will happen over the course of a, a few days, a day and a half, a few days, Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be in the valley of deep darkness where you can't see. He's going to be in terror and suffering, even amongst the, his own friends. So he will be asked, where did these wounds come from? And he will say, from my very friends. The passion narrative is, is, is slowing us down to see what's the most important event in all of the universe. That is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the valley of deep darkness, in, in the midst of, of deep darkness, Jesus prepares a table. And he does this in the midst of betrayal and denial. He does this in the midst of his own suffering. So the psalm so the psalmist is saying, Lord does this for me, but now here the Lord is doing this for those he loves. His very disciples, his very betrayers, his very deniers. Not in the midst of their deep darkness, but in the midst of his deep darkness. He prepares for them a table on the day of his death. Mark 14, verses 12 through 31, this morning in lies before us a passage which is a tragedy unfolding in three acts that's that's going to be our outline this morning there'll be a setting which is jesus's passover prepared for unfaithful men and then it'll unfold in these three acts highlighting and emphasizing act number two judas's betrayal is act number one jesus supper instituted is act number two and peter's denial foretold is act number three. So we're just going to, those are going to be the, the sort of points we hang our hats on this morning. And uh, we'll ask that the Lord uh, bless his word. You know, but what lies before us in this tragedy, as we see the Lord preparing a table for his followers, uh, the Lord's Supper for his followers, we see what J.R. Uh, Tolkien described as a eucatastrophe. Well, we don't see it in the supper, but we see hints of it, that it is coming. A eucatastrophe is a, a good destruction. The eucatastrophe coined by Tolkien is a sudden and happy turn in a story that brings tears of joy. Now that joy for the disciples and for the Lord is to come. But in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives glimpses of it in the midst of his most trying time. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Take the bread and wine and see that it will. The simple meal of bread and wine points us to how all this joy will come to pass. But first, betrayal, treachery, cowardice, and a Lord who offers himself as a sacrifice for many. So Jesus, the Passover lamb, was broken and poured out for, for traitors, for those who would deny him, those who would flee when he is stricken. And Jesus, in the midst of that, sovereignly prepares a Passover meal for unfaithful 
men and women. Beginning in verse 12, we see the scripture say, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover, his disciples said to him, where, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Where, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So we see as the passion narrative is moving forward, uh, it is Passover time. It is Passover time in which uh, the Jewish people would take a lamb and they would uh, take an unblemished lamb from their flock and they would kill it symbolizing that all of their sins was on the Passover lamb and, and something, blood, had to be shed in order for them to be forgiven. This whole event, from the sacrifice to the meal to the exodus from Egypt, it was not terminal. The event was never meant to continue uh, as it was given to the Israelites, but it found its termination in in Jesus, in the suffering of Jesus. And Jesus, the final lamb, would bring a new and final exodus from sin for his people, for all of his people, not just the Israelites coming from Egypt. That was a real Passover, but the full and final Passover would be for people like you and me, a salvation from sin. So the Passover, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a holiday. It was, a, it was a celebration of, uh, of events, sort of like maybe our 4th of July, our Independence Day and, and New Year's Day, all rolled into one, all combined, but even with more meaning than that. Uh, in Exodus 12, uh, the Lord gives instructions to, to Moses for his people. He says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It's going to be a new year. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he is, and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall... Keep it until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So God is giving them in the midst of, of their slavery. Then he's about to bring them out. He's giving them a holiday. A celebration. That he is going to redeem them. He's going to bring them out. And in between the threaten the threatening of the death of the firstborn god threatens the death of the firstborn of egypt to, to pharaoh and between that threatening of it and the execution of it in in exodus chapter 12 in the middle of that the lord provides a means of saving israel's firstborn alive and, and the way he would pass over the firstborn and not kill them would be by the blood of a lamb. As we read, a family would, or a group of families would take this lamb without blemish and, and they would lay their sins on the lamb uh, symbolically and they would slit its throat and the lamb would die. Uh, and he would not only be a sacrifice for sin, he, he would, that lamb would then become a meal for the people, for a celebration. They would take the, the blood of this lamb and they were to, symbolically, they, they put it on the top of the doorway and the two doorposts. And, and when the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over that house. He, he, he would not kill the firstborn as he did for those who didn't have the blood of the lamb. 
And so as we see this, as we come to the New Testament, we see that the Passover is actually about somebody else. All of these lambs slain, all of them were symbolic. They needed to, it needed to happen, but it had to happen every year. And year after year, a lamb was slain. And, and what was the hope of your sins being forgiven this year? It was all meant to point to someone else, another lamb who finally would come and, and, and take the sins of the whole world on himself and be a sacrifice for many. Now, this new Passover, this Passover, Jesus' Passover. In one sense, all of the Passovers were Jesus's because they all pointed to him. And in a real sense, this was Jesus' Passover this year in Mark 14. This was the Passover that would show that he is the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. But it shows it's his Passover in another way. It's his Passover in, in, in that he was in complete control of everything. He was sovereign over all. This was no tragic tale of an unwitting victim, friend. He, he, was, he, he was not unwillingly slaughtered. This wasn't just some political game or re religiously political game played by the upper class or, or those with the power. No, this was the greatest power inversion that ever happened. The king of glory became a lamb slain for people. This is the true story of a sovereign savior who's in complete control over it all, giving his life up for people. So the disciples, you know, how, how do we know he's in complete control? Well, well, the story that we just started to read is that Jesus tells them exactly what they're going to find, what, what, what they're to do to prepare the Passover for him and his disciples. And, and they find it in verse 16. Did you notice as I read, they found it exactly as Jesus said it would happen. Exactly. Now, people have tried to explain away that, you know, Jesus prepared of all of this beforehand, and, 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 and people who say he's sovereign over it all are just making things up. No, Jesus prepared this and then told the disciples about it. But even if Jesus prepared this beforehand, there are details in his instructions that show that actually he knew things that no one else could know. A man carrying a jug of water that had been very out of place. Uh, usually that was a job for women. Um, aren't, I'm glad to be living in this time where maybe we don't have to go get water and we don't have to like tell our wives, hey, go get the water and come back. It's better, right? But Jesus knows that you'll find a man carrying a jug. Even if he, pre even if he prepared it beforehand, how do you know that detail? How do you know they would run into him just as he said? No, oh, Jesus is knows everything beforehand and sovereignly controls everything. He's no unwitting victim. In fact, he is the God-man, and this is showing us his divine nature. He knows details only God could know. He is divine and complete control of all events. I wonder, friend, if you doubt that about God, about Jesus. Maybe Jesus was just an unwitting victim in a, in a cruel game. Maybe you think, and if that's true of him, maybe that's just true of me as well. Friend, that is not how the Gospels portray Jesus. He, he was a victim. But he was completely willing and in complete control. Friend, if this is true about Jesus... This is true about his control of your life as well. And if it's true, ask yourself, why do I have a hard time trusting him with my life? Why do I have a hard time trusting him with my money? Why do you have a hard time trusting him for your future? Well, why do you try to control your kids in such a way that they will have the best life that they can have and they'll never be hurt? They will, they will never experience suffering or sorrow. Jesus, the, the suffering king, is telling you, you can trust me. 
I'm in complete control even when it looks like things are out of control. You can trust him, college student, for your grades. You don't have to worry or, or, or be anxious. You don't have to pull all-nighter after all-nighter until you get sick. You don't have to cheat. And Jesus is complete control of everything. And he gave his life for you. As Jesus' as Jesus's Passover is prepared, we see him in complete control, planning, foretelling, and foretelling events that only God could know. So with this setting in mind, the curtain opens on act one of Judas's betrayal. And we move from the happy scene of disciples preparing to celebrate a holiday to the dark scene of the betrayal of a close friend foretold. Notice verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Friends, Judas is not just any friend. He is one of the 12. He's one of Jesus' closest companions. He's, he's been with Jesus all along while Jesus performed miracles. Uh, he was there when Jesus taught. When he taught only the disciples the true meaning of the parables. He, he was there always watching the money. Friends, he was a living illustration of the seed that falls to the ground and springs up. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes that seed and kills it. So there's Judas, always plotting, scheming, all the while having the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ right before his eyes. The Son of Man in flesh eating with Judas, praying with Judas, teaching Judas. But it wasn't enough for Judas. Judas wanted something more. He wanted something else. He wanted money. The horror of this betrayal is also connected to, to, the, to the meal. The, of, in the ancient Near East, you know, if you, if you know, paid attention to the details, you saw them reclining at table. They ate a little differently than us. Even the significance of the meal was a little bit different than for us. It wasn't just a, a social gathering. This was, it was more like a, a contract for them. When you sat to meal, when you reclined at table with someone, you, you were making a promise to them. When you ate with someone, you were promising not to commit hostile acts against the one you were eating with. Hospitality was very important in the ancient Near East and had symbols and meaning that we don't really quite understand. But we get it, right? We, if we have a meal with somebody, we shouldn't be betrayed. We shouldn't use that meal to be betraying them. One scholar says it like this, eating together was evidence of peace and trust and forgiveness and brotherhood. To betray the one who had given you this bread, his own bread was a horrendous act. Close quote. So in this, in Judas's life and in this story, he, 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 he shows us some warnings. There's some warnings that we should be careful of. And warning number one from, from this story of Judas's betrayal is that, friends, we should examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith or not. It, it seems that none of the other disciples suspected Judas. They didn't look at Judas and say, yeah, I, I kind of figured it was him, but, uh, you know, I just didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. No, it was, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was unexpected. And this should warn us to not put our trust in religious acts, friends. Don't, don't put your trust in religious acts or in church attendance or in good others' good opinion of you. Don't put your trust in those things. And friends, don't put your trust in those things for other people. 
Just because someone shows up here to church and can say all of the right words or, or commits, you know, or, or does religious acts or gives big offerings or, or has big emotional responses to God or sorrows that we have never known. We don't trust in those things. We trust in Jesus alone. An old songwriter, you know, put it like this, we, that we put our trust in someone else. That's Jesus. Songwriter said, on a life I have not lived, on a death I did not die, another's tears and another's griefs. It's, it's not on my tears, or not on griefs that I have known, but another's tears, another's griefs, on these I rest, on these alone. Friends, we cannot trust ourselves. We must not trust ourselves. We, we must not put trust in the fruit that we bear. We must put trust in Jesus alone. Herein is Jesus' problem. He loved and trusted in something other than Jesus. The warning number two, it's implicit in the text. And, and that is, is a warning against trusting in experiences with Jesus instead of Jesus. It's, it's similar to the first warning, but a little different. The non-Christian friend, do you say, I will only believe God if he shows me that he exists? See Judas as a warning. Judas was in the presence of very God, the God-man. And he was in his presence for years. And though he was, he chose to reject Jesus. To be, friends, a warning to us who have children and are bringing them up in the church. We should be pushing them towards real repentance. True repentance. Only trusting in Jesus not living a good life, not obeying the Ten Commandments, not honoring your father and mother. Trust Jesus alone. All of those things are good. They're not necessarily signs of faith. Christian friend, you who depend on hearing an audible word from God, friend, Judas heard the incarnate God speak in intimate settings, and he betrayed the Lord of glory. We must not depend on these things, but look to Jesus alone as he's presented to us in the scriptures. You know, John Piper famously said, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible out loud. Here's the point. Trust Jesus alone, not in our subjective experiences of him. And the third and last warning is not to blame God for Jesus' betrayal or your unbelief. You know, Son of Man went as it is written uh, of, this, of him in the scripture. And, and, and Judas was, you know, he, he was the son of perdition. And it, it, he, he was in, in one sense, in, in God's overall plan, predestined to do this. But Judas was under no divine necessity but to betray his maker, as one commentator put it. The, the blame for unbelief is on Judas, not on God. Judas was there as Jesus was telling them that he was giving his life as a ransom for many. Turn and be saved. Just like the blame for unbelief was on the Pharisees and Sadducees, not on Jesus. I know there are a lot of questions surrounding divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And there's, there aren't simplistic answers to complex questions. So, so you shouldn't expect there to be. I, I, can't, I can't make all the tensions dissolve for you. The Bible teaches both, and we must hold them in tension. God is completely sovereign. Humans are responsible for the choices they make. And God will punish them for the very choices that they make. Friends, Ju Judas wasn't doing, doing something that he didn't want to do. Judas wanted to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't God was making Judas do something against his will. If, if you want to read more about this, I, I just recommend uh, D.A. Carson's book, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. Or a more popular, shorter book is uh, J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, so the, 
I guess I'm punting to the, those guys to, to, for a fuller discussion on it. I would love to talk to you more about what all of that means. But Jesus is foretelling Judas's betrayal is another evidence of Jesus' authority and sovereignty over everything. And it's a warning for us. But the warning gives way to a meal. In the presence of a friend who was an enemy, Jesus has a meal with his disciples. And the curtain closes on Act 1 and opens up again on Act 2. In verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant which I poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So Act 2, Jesus' Supper inaugurated. The sorrow and the horror of that night it happens in the context of the Passover that we just talked about. The Passover was giving way to its fuller expression in the Lord's Supper. Uh, you know, just like you would have uh, the same kind of thing for your family's Thanksgiving meal, the Thanksgiving dinner, you, most people, you know, have the same elements, turkey, mashed potatoes, those kinds of things. But even if you don't have that, you have something, some sort of family tradition. And those that celebrating the Passover meal would have had the same elements from year after year after year. And, and the Passover elements from the, from the biblical record was that it was a roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. And historically, we, we find out the meal was, was celebrated with, with uh, te- retelling of the Exodus story and eating the lamb and eating the unleavened bread and drinking four cups of wine. And But if you notice, if you will, the elements that Mark records for us in the Passover feast, bread and a cup of wine. Mark does not record there was lamb present at the feast. And Jesus does not use lamb as a part of the meal. Why? Because... This very night, he would be betrayed and given over to be crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here, in symbolic form, we have the great sacrifice. Jesus Christ, standing before them, will be sacrificed very soon. And the great offering that all other sacrifices pointed to, the, uh, that all other offerings pointed to, not, not only the sacrificial system, but the, the Old Testament itself, all pointing to this singular moment in history. But even the previous offerings in Mark, do you remember? We preached about them before, the, the woman who gave her two mites and, the, and the, the woman who broke the ointment, this very expensive ointment over Jesus. Both of these offerings are pointing and taking our mind back that these offerings were actually pointing to something else. These offerings were pointing us in the text to a greater offering. You know, think of Davy's sermon last week. This, this woman takes this very expensive ointment, about a year's wage worth, and she breaks it. The text says that she smashes it. And the ESV translates it, it's broken. That, that's right. She broke it. She shattered it and poured it out on Jesus. Why? Because she saw Jesus as most worthy of it. And she was right. But her offering was not the greatest offering. It was the best that she could give. But it pointed to a greater offering. The one Jesus was about to make, the offering that was symbolized in the Passover, would now be instituted as a Lord's Supper for his people, for people like you, for people like me. And Jesus, as he takes the bread and he takes the cup, he says the same words. This bread is broken for you. It's just like the lady broke the ointment. My body, this bread is like my body. What happens to this bread is going to happen to my body. And it's for you. 
this, this cup is the new, te- te- new covenant in my blood, that which is poured out for you. Just as the lady gave all that she could, Jesus gave everything that he had for us. He gave his very life. He was betrayed as the Lamb of God. He was slain. He was broken and poured out for you. Jesus' body was broken for us because of us. And Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out for us because of us. His life was given for us because of us. John Stott said this, that before we can see the cross has done something for us, leading us to faith and worship, we must first see that it was done, it was something done by us, leading us to repentance. Another preacher goes on in that quote to say this, only the man or woman prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. The Savior would be broken and poured out as an offering for sin. In this moment, he holds up the bread and he says, this bread is broken for you, my body. He, he passes around the cup proclaiming that his blood would be poured out for them, a new covenant, a new promise for them. He would drink down the cup of God's wrath to the dregs so that you wouldn't have to. You could drink the cup of God's blessing. We look back to the cross, which brings full salvation for us presently. But we are remiss if we think this is only a memorial, friends. This is not a a, a mere memorial, the Lord's table does not only mean we are supposed to remember. We are to remember, but the word remember means more for Christians, doesn't it? Here's how a New Testament scholar put it. The Passover was not intended to be a gratifying memento of God's past deliverance of Israel. The celebration was meant to place each generation in touch with the event and make it a present reality. It celebrates what the Lord did for me. So in the same way, the Lord's Supper is not a memorial of something past and gone, but reminds us of what the Lord has done for us and makes his death a present living reality. So yes, remember, but bring it right into the present for you now. It's that, it's that picture of a, of a dead loved one. You know, your, de- your grandma who died of cancer years ago, you look at the picture and you remember her. My, my grandma uh, died in 2012, and I, I remember her vividly as someone who pointed me to Jesus. She's a, one of the main reasons I'm a Christian today. And I lo- if I look at her picture, if I, if I remember her, there's something more about this memorial for me. It brings it into its present reality for me that her life lived in faith of Jesus Christ helped point me to Jesus this is what the meal is supposed to do for you. It points you to the future. It points you to the past, bringing it into present reality, but it also points you to the future. There's reason he instituted it. It was to cause hope to rise in those who eat it in hope. He says, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This inaugurated meal says that it has happened already it is happening already in Jesus death and resurrection and there will be a fuller meal to come there'll be a greater meal to come when in in his presence we will eat together and feast in the house of Zion So you eat in hope that the breaking and the pouring out of Jesus is enough to secure your future. It's enough. Jesus' brokenness and pouring out of his life was enough to cover and get rid of the sins that you committed this week, this very morning. And we'll take you right on into the future where you can sit with him ones who have betrayed, ones who have denied him, sit with him and have a meal. 
And this would be crucial for all the disciples, but especially one. Peter could say, this meal was given to me before I denied. Before I was scandalized by Jesus. So this, his death is enough for me. It will reconcile me back to him. And we notice, you know, when Jesus restores Peter, do you remember how he does it? You see it in the end of the book of John, he restores Peter over a meal. And restores him wholly. He restores him back and, and, and tells him to feed his people. The thing he's supposed to feed the people is not, just, is not fish. He's supposed to feed them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it hasn't been restored yet. Peter hasn't denied. He's emphatic. He will not deny. So the curtain closes on Act 2 of the meal inaugurated, and it opens on Act 3. Peter's denial foretold. It says in verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. This is a word for scandalized. You will all be scandalized, for it is written, This is just what Sean read for us earlier this morning. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is foretold of Jesus hundreds of years before. And he says, but after I'm raised, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jesus sacrifices enough for betrayers like you and me. I don't believe Judas probably finally actually turned to Jesus. He thought hurting himself was enough. He did not turn to Jesus because he did not see Jesus as enough. He thought hanging himself was. It's enough for those who deny Jesus under severe pressure like Peter. So it's enough for betrayers. It's enough for deniers. And Peter has, as a spokesman for, for all of the disciples, he claims that he will never deny Jesus, not even under the threat of death. Unlike Judas, Peter actually believed that. Peter actually believed that he would not deny Jesus, even though Jesus, the Son of Man, foretold it right before him. Arrogant, Peter? Yes. Short-sighted? Definitely. Insincere? No way. Peter fully intended to go with the Lord even unto death. But the suffering he saw would make him deny, even in front of a little girl. I, I do not mock Peter for this. Friends, this is what suffering does to us. This is what suffering can do to us. It makes you question everything you believed before. You try and, and, and be tortured for your faith. Deny Jesus and we'll stop the bamboo shoots from going up your fingernails. Deny Jesus, we'll stop breaking your limbs. It might make you say things you never thought possible. Peter, he, he would go to death with Jesus. Even if I have to be imprisoned or die, I will not deny you. You're that important to me. Friends, suffering is real. It can make us do all kinds of things. You know, and, and you've heard it before said that you, you just have to make up your mind before the time that you're going to suffer that you're not going to deny Jesus. Because in your suffering, you, you, you know, if you don't make up your mind, you won't. Peter had made up his mind, friends. He said, I won't do it. And he did it. And he becomes just like the rest of the disciples and like you and me. When suffering comes, when real suffering comes, we're tempted to say, like Job's wife, curse God and die. POW camps were filled with men who were trained not to break under pressure and pain, not to break under the pressure of deprivation. But anyone who's tortured long enough will break under the right kind of pressure. There was a, a Navy commander 
His last name was Stratton, and he was, uh, he was interned at the same camp as John McCain. And that senior-ranking American officer, they sent out a message to, to, uh, to other people that were in this internment camp. And they let out the message to them. Fight them as long as you can. And don't despair when they break you. They have broken us all. Peter's denial and the disciples' denial and our denials of the Lord are connected to suffering, but also to the wrong view of Jesus. I mean that suffering that Jesus endured on the cross led Jesus not to deny his Father or us. This suffering that, uh, that is, is racking your life, it, it, it's not something that Jesus doesn't know. The very sufferings, the worst suffering that he experienced on the cross did not leave Jesus to deny us, but to claim us. He did all of this so he could restore us in our denials of him. The disciples scattered and denied was a part of the prophecy, but it was also a means by which the Lord would restore them. He told them, I will rise again and meet them in Galilee. Galilee was a place of hope and resurrection and life. Jerusalem was the place of rejection and death. Jerusalem was the place of the scattering, but Galilee was the place of the gathering. And Jesus is giving them hope. He's saying, I will meet you there again. You're going to scatter. They're going to strike me. You're going to scatter, but I will gather you there again. Jesus had to die alone so that he could gather his people. And I don't, I don't know all of your stories here. Maybe some of you have even denied Jesus in your words or actions this week. You've denied him, that you know him. You've been confronted with your Christianity and, and you've denied him by your own sins, maybe. And you wonder, is there grace enough for me? Is there grace enough to restore me? Think of that night, that Passover night. You know, that first Passover night where, uh, you know, two, two, two men are, uh, one of, both of them have applied the blood of the lamb to their doorposts. But, but one of them uh, is, is very anxious because he knows his sins. He, he knows he's not exactly right with God in the way he should be. But he's, he's remorseful. He's done what God has required of him, but he is just not sure. He's anxious. The other man, we can call him Sam, Joseph and, and Sam. And Sam also applies the blood. Uh, and, and, and he goes to bed. He doesn't even think twice about it. God said to do this. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to go to sleep. Which person will wake up in the morning with their firstborn son alive? Both of them. Both of them will. Because the blood of the lamb is enough for the Lord to pass over and not kill you. Because he took his own firstborn son in your place. He will not take you. There is no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. His blood is enough to restore deniers like Peter and every other disciple. His death and life, broken and poured out for you, is enough to restore you. So every Sunday, you proclaim this as you gather with God's people. You proclaim as you gather, as you take this meal that we're about to take together, as you refuse to believe the lies of the evil one that he tells you that you're unworthy, you are unworthy, but Jesus in his blood says, come, all you unfaithful, come to the table. And the sovereign Lord amid his own suffering death in the valley of deep darkness gives a meal. He was broken and poured out for you, for unworthy people like you and me. And so he says, come, come to this table. Confess your sins before him and see what God has done. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would finish this work in our hearts.
apply it in ways that I haven't thought of. Apply it in, in ways that we need, oh God. For all of us who have come into this building and have thought you weren't enough, will you show us that Jesus being broken and poured out for us is enough? Give us hope for the future. And pray that you would finish this work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we turn to the Lord's table, friends, uh, I, I invite you, as, before we are during, we, while we sing the next song, uh, to grab the elements if you haven't already. Uh, but, but we, um, before we take the Lord's table, we, we believe uh, that Paul's commands for us to examine ourselves so we don't eat unworthily is an important command. Not one to just be, uh, um, just to be brushed over. So we want to be examining our hearts, not, not in a way that says, did we live a perfect life, but are we repenting of our sins and turning to Christ? What is your only hope in life and death? That's what we're asking. And so I, I'm going to pray a prayer of confession for us. I'm going to give time, uh, time of silence for personal confession. That's just going to be a, a, a silent time um, where you're confessing your personal sins to God. And then I'll read for us an assurance of pardon from Hebrews 10. That's a way for us to remember that this work is done by him and not by us. We can be assured that he has truly pardoned us. And then we will proclaim his death through the Lord's table that it was enough for us. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come to you. We confess freely to you. God, you told us to come to you without fear. Come to you boldly as, uh, as your children. Um, and so we do come to you, confessing our sins freely. Father, we've betrayed you this week through little actions, not in the same way Judas did. And, and I pray for those who feel as if uh, they're afraid, that they, they're not one of the elect. God, I pray that, that that very worry in their heart would point them to you, that, that Jesus calls all who labor and heavy laden to come to him and he will give them rest. I, I pray that there would be a calm in, in our hearts because of the work Christ has done, because he broke his body for us. He poured out his blood for us. Forgive us, oh God, for our sins of not thinking you're enough, turning to other things that, that look like are more than you, are better than you. Forgive us for that, oh God. Forgive those of us who uh, who have betrayed you by uh, what we love more than you. Forgive us for uh, denying you. God, we do that in, in lots of ways. Forgive us for de denying you in, in the way we, we act, in our sins, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Uh, I pray that you would forgive us for uh, denying that your word is enough. And we show that because we just haven't read it. We haven't believed it. Forgive us, oh God, for denying that you've, you want us to pray and come to you. But we haven't done that this week very much because we don't think you can answer our prayers. We think you've given uh, us to answer our prayers. God, f forgive us. We've denied you by, by lusting after things you've not given us. In, in so doing, we have said that, that things are better than you. Gratifying our our flesh is, is better than you, and you have said you're better than life. God, forgive us. We know uh, that you have said if we confess our sins, you will forgive them. So give us confidence, even through taking the Lord's Supper, that that is true. I pray that you would forgive us for Christ's sake. Even as we are confessing our sins now in a time of silence, would you be the one who gets glory and assures us of your love? Amen.
Father, please secure us by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, brothers and sisters, lift up your heads and lift up your hearts and these, hear these words of, of a pardon for you from Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith and with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and let our bodies washed with pure water. Now, we, would you stand together as we sing, and we're going to be singing of a, a fountain filled with blood. Uh, and, and just remember the day of your conversion. Remember when you were baptized and, and claimed by God himself that he is yours and you are his. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. It was given for you freely. Let's sing in praise of him.